I'm Stephanie Cox, and this is Mobile Matters. Today, I'm joined by Peter Schroeder. Peter is the head of growth at Ona, a platform that centralizes data from your favorite apps to deliver a connected enterprise supercharged with machine learning and unified search all-in-one-place experience. Prior to that, he was the head of marketing at NorthPass, where he helped grow the company from pre-product market fit to a technology leader used by Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and Shopify, just to name a few. In this episode, Peter and I talk a lot about how he's developed an impressive resume of marketing leadership roles at only 26, why he believes niches make riches, and what it's like to go from trying to find product market fit to post-series A funding at a startup. And make sure you stick around to the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways so that you can not only think about marketing differently, but implement it effectively. Welcome to the show, Peter. So tell me a little bit about how you got started in your career and really kind of what you're doing today. Yeah, definitely. So um, I uh, am a little bit younger in marketing. I'm only uh, 26, but I've already been doing this for over eight years. Wait, hold years. on a second. You're only 26? <laughs> Correct. I'm, uh, I'm only 26. Uh, I got started pretty early. Um, early on, right out of college, I thought I wanted to be a web designer. So I went to technical school. Um, I thought all the money uh, was sort of in programming, and I decided I hated it. I wasn't the type of person that could sit there and look at a screen. Um, I needed to like build things that were creative and physical and tangible and not necessarily um, just sit on the keyboard all day. So I kind of pivoted to uh, a degree that's actually digital marketing technology, and it has a really big focus on uh, SaaS and software and technology. Um, and in my sophomore year uh, of college, I started working um, at a bank as a digital marketing intern. And then before I even graduated college, uh, I got my first job at a really early startup called RenderFX that just raised uh, a seed round. So uh, I got, I kind of knew from early on that I wanted to be involved in tech when I just kind of saw the movement uh, that was happening in the space. So I, I made the plunge early on. And since then, uh, I've hopped to a couple different software companies that have, that's brought me to the company I'm at right now, which is Ona, which I'm really excited about. Uh, just a couple months ago, we raised our Series A, which was led by Dawn Capital with participation from Dropbox and the Slack Fund. And um, yeah, every single day, I just uh, love marketing software more and more. Um, I would not have guessed that you were only 26 after looking at your res- like your LinkedIn resume profile. You've had some <laughs> amazing experience, roles. So thinking about all that, you've been able to really lead a marketing team from pre-product market fit. So basically trying to figure out like, who are we, what do we do, and does the world want what we have? To past Series A funding. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah, I think what it's always been for me, uh, being younger in my career, is I need to um, outwork people. I need to research uh, more than other people can. I need to build my case so it's not uh, subjective, sort of like straw man per se conversations, but I'm coming to the table with steel man conversations supported by facts um, and quantitative data that can actually paint a picture on what I'm trying to do. So um, I've worked at a couple early stage companies that I've found 
a few things are really important. Um, I've always kind of looked at technology from like a crossing the chasm, uh, which is a great book for anyone that's early in software. But when you think about crossing the chasm, it's about finding those early innovators and kind of that early tribe that just has um, a rabid following for what you're doing. They're passionate about it. They see the vision and you kind of want to cling on to those people. Um, and you want to help, you want to have them sort of lead the way into sort of an early majority of a more broad audience. Um, and I think that when we think about software today and how commoditized it is and how saturated these markets are, um, what a lot of people get wrong early is I think a lot of people go really horizontal. They try to say we can do a hundred different things for a hundred different people. But when you're really early on, if you look at it, you're doing a very small number of things really well for a small number of people. So it's really about focusing, uh, going really vertical on your solution and your audience. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to get a lot more tailored with your marketing, your messaging. Um, you see the craze in ABM right now. Like I think ABM is just good marketing, like to be honest. Um, if, <laughs> like and it's I know basically I was gonna I was gonna say it's like basically a phrase for people who have been doing good B2B marketing for like ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you know, good marketing is right message to the right audience at the right time, which is essentially what people are trying to advocate for with ABM. Um, but like you said, that's just good marketing. And the further along the chasm you go and the, f the more that you develop audiences in different markets, I think it's good to go more horizontally, introduce more new products, new audiences, new use cases. Uh, but really early on when you're sort of like pre-product market fit and kind of like running as fast as you can for that series a it's really about focus like you're a small team doing a small number of things like you need to use all of your energy as a team to just be able to focus on what's working and what's working well and sort of sprint to uh you know whatever that goal is if it's series a like small niches can get a lot of companies to uh, a series a and then you kind of can figure it out from there what you introduce next so one of the things that you said that I think was really interesting was about this idea of focus. And I think that's something a lot of marketers struggle with, especially if you've come from a larger organization and then you've went into like the startup scale up world and you're used to selling, you know, everything to every industry and all these enterprise brands. And you want to kind of replicate that, but you, to your point earlier, you don't have the resources from either time, money, people, but how, so how do you think about like deciding to go vertical, but then also not going so vertical that, you know, five years down the road, you can't expand. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because I think you can always expand. You can always introduce new products and new um, different use cases based on what your product does. I think what you can't do early on is sort of unconfuse your audience when you send conflicting messages. So if you have, uh, let's say you're pre-series A, you have a, a hundred customers, you have an average selling price of about $25,000. Like that's really a small audience. Like I'm sure all of those people are doing one particular thing and you want to be able to make sure that you can focus and make sure that you're advocating for that one thing that you're doing and not confusing them or the market with what you do. So if you're an email uh, automation tool and everyone's using you for that. And then all of a sudden you come up with some messaging and some product features and a sort of campaign around, um, let's just say, 
I'm struggling to find an example, but let's say you introduce a chat tool like Slack and everyone's kind of like, what? That doesn't make a lot of sense for what we're trying to do, our pains, our problems, the value that you provide us. Like this is really conflicting messaging. We're not really sure what you do anymore or if you're committed to the long-term needs uh, and the problems that we're facing. So I think that that's where focus comes in handy a lot early on is just making sure you have that core commitment to your early audience uh, and can help like voice that to the rest of the market and make sure that they have a clear understanding of what you do. No, I completely agree. I also think it's important to know too that let's say you do have a committed customer base and you do expand outside into another area, they're going to expect they get the same level of service and the same product consistency and quality that they have from you with your original offering. And sometimes that can bite you if you're moving too fast or you're expanding into an area where you don't necessarily have the expertise that they would expect from your brand. Yeah, I agree completely. Every every early stage startup team is getting pulled in a million different directions. I, I, I don't know why anyone would want to do that on two fronts. It's hard enough to build uh, sort of this one ship, kind of get it off to sea and get it sailing, let alone uh, introduce another one into the mix at the same time with the same amount of people. I completely agree. So thinking about all the challenges that you faced and kind of going from concept idea to series a what do you think your biggest challenges and what would do you wish you would have done differently yeah i think the biggest challenge um at an early stage company is finding that niche like when we think about the the software industry and how commoditized it's getting it's still doubling year over year even though it's a very saturated market so Uh, I really like the phrase for early companies, niches make riches. Uh, And I think it's so true. (laughs) I I can't remember who said that. (laughs) I know it's not mine. I have to give someone credit for that. Um, But yeah, niches make riches. And I think that that's true on a lot of different fronts, just really uh, focusing on one audience, serving them well. When you think about those niches, um, a lot of the niches have communities and have people that talk like uh, at my last company, North Pass, we, we specialized in the uh, on-demand space. We served to Uber, we sold to Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. Um, and those worlds are actually really small. When you think about people who use our product and they jump to another company or they have these sort of on-demand focus groups where they're uh, focusing specifically on the problems that they're facing. Uh, without even realizing what was happening behind the scenes, these our customers were collaborating on their own, sort of talking about uh, how they were using our product to solve problems. And before we knew it, we kind of just flooded the on-demand space into every big on-demand company, uh, not just in the U.S., but in the world. We started expanding to uh, the Ubers of Europe, the sort of food delivery companies of India, because we solved this technology problem that was specific for all of them. Um, so I, I kind of want to reference, I know you talked to Matthew Schwazy about this from Salesforce, and he used uh, a toothbrush example. For, for those who didn't hear it, I'll give a quick overview, not as uh, elegantly as he did, uh, but sort of a summary. He said that if you're going to the store and you're looking for uh, a toothbrush and you don't know what you're going to look for, if you, you don't know exactly what you're looking for, you're going to be met by a wall of these colors, different toothbrush options, uh, it's overwhelming. 
Um, and he says that most people uh, pull out their phone, they go on Google, they look up best toothbrush uh, or some string of phrases to find some recommendations of what they should try. Um, and I think that's one way that people buy today from both a B2B and a B2C perspective. Um, but I think there's a second option and I think it's a, a word of mouth option uh, where people are uh, referring your product to other people that do something similar to what they do or maybe even the same thing uh, that they do. And um, I know it's kind of corny, but I like to call it the Candyland example. If you think about Candyland, there's a, there's a big rainbow that sort of jumps you from uh, early on to towards the end. Um, and I think that word of mouth marketing really is uh, that Candyland example that it can get you pretty close to the finish line uh, of a sale and kind of skip a lot of the traditional steps that you would normally face. No, I love that example of both toothbrushes and Candyland. Who would have thought we'd be talking about that on a podcast today about marketing? <laughs> Who would have thought that we'd be talking about Candyland? <laughs> I know. I love it. So one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about, just given my experience in the startup scale-up world, is what it really is like to work at a startup. I'd love to get your perspective on that because I think sometimes people have this glamorized view of, you know, it's basically you know, Patagonia vests and like beer pong and things like that when it's, I mean, rarely any of those things. So what was, what was that like for you or, you know, kind of what amount of, you know, stress or workload and just overall highs and lows did you experience as part of that journey? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because someone was asking me about like the perks of working at a startup and like the benefits that you get, you know, when you talk to people like working at Google, they all know how glamorous it is, but they're like, what are those perks entail? And I was telling them about some of them like catered lunches, like once a week, like masseuse coming in. And they kind of just looked at me like wide eyed and they're like, do you realize like how lucky you are to be working in an industry where you get things like that? And I said, I know I, I am grateful. I think it's uh, ridiculous sometimes the, the perks that people in tech receive um, but in the same breath, I think it's warranted. I think that what we're doing in software and what we're building for the future, the sort of foundation um, of everything that we're creating in technology, I think it's integral for, for the future of the world. Um, and I think that people in tech really do need that balance because it is, um, it can be really stressful, especially when you think about early stage companies, people have so much on the lines. The founders have their reputation, their livelihood on the line. Um, as someone that they bring in as sort of a, a leader early on, they're entrusting their livelihoods in you. So that's a lot of um, sort of personal pressure to take on. Uh, when I started at my last company, North Pass, we, we were a bootstrapped company. So if you think about that from uh, the perspective of someone working for that founder, every day that you're working and not getting closer to profitability, you're spending money directly from that person's pocket, which um, is a terrifying feeling. And it, it gives a lot of stress, anxiety, pressure that, that kind of results in a lot of overworking that you have to make sure that you can find a really good work-life balance that, that I like to find in the form of rituals, you know, making sure that you get up from bed and don't hop on the phone right away and start blasting emails right from bed the second you wake up, like have a little bit of personal time, be able to make a cup of tea or coffee and kind of just 
do something on your own, have your own time in the morning, make sure that you get out for walks during the day and actually like see sunlight. Don't be behind a computer screen from, uh, you know, uh, sunrise to sunset um, at night, making sure that you spend time with people that you care about. It's, it's easy to get sucked into these um, mission critical things where you end up working late into the nights and uh, you might not talk to the people that you love and care about all day. And I think that like anything, there needs to be a, sort of a work-life balance, but I think even more so in, in technology when we're all just so encapsulated by uh, the, the big goals, the pressure, uh, and also the opportunity that so many people that work in tech are excited about. So kind of adding to that, another thing that's really been hot as a topic in tech lately has been product-led growth strategies. And I've seen that you've done some experience and kind of that freemium model concept that seems to be all the rage today, right? That's what Box, Dropbox, Slack, you name it, seems to be doing this and really getting you into a free trial or even a free offering and then trying to convert you down the road. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on product-led growth. And is that something that marketers, especially in SaaS, should be considering? And we're also seeing it in the B2C space with Netflix, Hulu, and others offering a free trial for a set period of time. Yeah, I, I mean, it all comes back to saturations of the market. Um, I think that having a really good world-class product is more and more important. Um, in software, I think there's kind of like two sets of product quality when you really boil it down. Uh, I'm going to use a Fight Club reference to, to uh, phrase one of them. But the first one, which you really don't want to market if you're a marketer, is uh, products that come with this message that like the first rule about our product is like you don't talk about our product and what I mean by that is like <laughs> I, I really see it a lot where it's like you go through the sales process and they just don't want to show you the product like they would do anything to like get you to sign before they actually show you the product which is like a have a product <laughs> it means that or it's it's also like a really classic sales technique that just means that they don't have a good product too. Yep. They might have something that works, but they're selling you on a product vision that might be two to three years down the line. Um, and it's surprising to me that we still see that tactic work uh, in 2019 going into 2020, but uh, you still see a lot of it. And then on the other end, you have companies that embrace their product, uh, build world-class technology uh, and say, hey, this is so cool. We want the world to see it. Uh, we're not afraid of anything on our product. It might be a little bit buggy here, but our team built this world-class experience that we want you to see. And if there are a couple of bugs in it, we hope you want to help us fix it. And we hope that you want to give us feedback and uh, help shape our product roadmap so that we can build out features and integrations that suit your need. But hopefully in you just seeing and experience our, in experiencing our product, you can just see the vision that you have. We don't have to sell you our two to three year vision down the road. You can say, you can look at our product and say, holy shit, this is awesome. And it's only going to get better. Of course, I want to work with this company. Um, and if you think about that perspective, as, a, as opposed to the first rule about our product, don't talk about our product perspective. As a marketer, um, then you can just amplify that message exponentially as opposed to uh, almost being afraid to tell people about your product. No, I think that's a good point. One of the other things that I know that I want to talk about, because it kind of, I thought was hilarious as I was prepping to talk to you, 
I saw recently you tweeted something that was, we have too much data for shitty marketing to exist. And I like just literally was like, yes, so true. (laughs) So why does it keep happening? So I would love to know what prompted that. And please just tell me like your thoughts on what the hell we're doing wrong. (laughs) I I thought that that was interesting. It, It came because I was browsing through Facebook and um, I got an ad that was just so off base that I I couldn't even believe that I was seeing it. And it made me think about your episode again with Matthew Schwazy from Salesforce that you talked about earlier. And he talked about how his boss saw a billboard from a competitor and his boss was like, hey, we should be uh, taking out billboards like our competitors. And Matthew's like, wait, why? why would we do that just because other people are doing that? We don't know if that's right for us, right for our audience, right for the campaigns we're running. We don't know if it's providing any sort of ROI or effectiveness for them. So why would we do something just because people say we should do something? And that's really the quantitative versus qualitative world that we live in. And when you think about quantitative versus qualitative marketing, um, you need to be able to provide the data and be able to prove assumptions that you make. As marketers, it's our obligation to build out tests. What it means in building out a test is you come up with an assumption. You test the assumption and then you try to define what it means uh, if that was a success or if it was a failure. So that's three steps that actually can prove whether something would work as opposed to saying, hey, we should run billboards. Um, It's a much more scientific approach and it's approach, an approach that every marketer should be taking. There's, there's no reason that uh, anyone should just come up with an idea and it should just be executed on uh, with no contrarian argument at all. Every, every idea that we have, every campaign we run, uh, we always have to look at what are the pros, what are the cons, and what else could we be doing. And I think especially at early stage companies, we have such a finite amount of time and resources and money Um, that we have to be very conscious about what we're doing. And so I guess to to sort of boil down uh, a long story into something short, I just think that people are just running with ideas based on on nothing but ideas alone. And it's resulting in um, people getting served marketing that they really shouldn't, um, leading to an overall uh, pretty much bad experience, which is the worst thing that you want if you're, you're a marketer for your audience. Well, and it's also a vicious cycle. So for instance, let's say your boss sees some billboard and he's like, we should be doing this. So then you just go ahead and do it. And then someone else sees that you're doing it too. And now it's like, oh, well, billboards are the way to go. And it just kind of perpetuates sometimes bad marketing. And I can't tell you how many times I'll see, you know, a company like kind of mimic another company and then more people start mimicking them. And I'm like, you have no idea if that initial company was even getting results. Perhaps they were just doing it to test out a concept and now 40 other companies have followed their marketing efforts that way. Yeah, and there's two trending topics right now that I wonder if that's the case for. I think they're direct mail and events. Um, I've heard a lot about events lately and people kind of come to the table and they say, hey, we're gonna like lose a lot of money on this event. Uh, We're not really directly able to track or measure anything that we're actually doing, but we all believe that events are a really good idea. And I have yet to see 
um, sort of a report or sort of a case study that confirms that uh, these huge events that are losing millions of dollars for companies are actually, in fact, a good idea. Yeah, the only ones I know, at least from my experience, that have ever been good have, you know, at my time at Exact Target and Salesforce, those were like Dreamforce and Connections were huge events for us, but it wasn't about necessarily, you know, generating a ton of new customers. There was some of that, but it was more about upsells and really creating a community of people that wanted to invest in selling more or, you know, using your product more, which then continued to cause them to buy more products and things like that. So I know in those cases, you would see direct dollar correlations. I think the bigger question is whether or not that would have happened without an event. Who knows, right? I mean, some of it would have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that also feeds into a problem that so many people are facing that's uh, actually defining multi-touch attribution, which yes. events is probably a huge example of where people are running into that problem. No, I completely agree. Or in email is another example, because how many times do you email someone and did the email drive the sale or was it another, was it the event or was it the direct mail or was it the Facebook ad they saw? Yeah. It's and no, what really yeah, did it? it? I, I agree, especially once you get into these more enterprise sales that some of them can take 18 months to 24 months. If you think about the touch points and the hundreds of touch points that could go into that sale, uh, it, it makes it very difficult to be able to track from a marketing perspective where you need to uh, attribute certain, certain amounts of at, attribution. And especially when you consider consumers don't, we don't stay on one device anymore, right? Like I can't tell you how many times, like at night, I'm like on the couch working on my computer, but then I'm also on my phone. And then sometimes I'm on my personal computer at home or my husband's phone. And so as a buyer, like I might've seen your email on my laptop, but I'm on my mobile device going straight to your website. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think that those sort of, you know, just passing by and keeping a company top of mind, I think also another thing that's hard to measure is marketing to buying committees. If you think about that ABM approach and getting in front of um, different people at different companies, if you go to your boss with a proposal and he already knows about the company that you're uh, proposing to him, if he's already seen case studies, ROI metrics, how much more efficient it can make the team, how much easier does that buying process become? It, it's things that are really hard to measure. No, I completely agree. So another thing that I noticed, you recently talked a lot about and wrote a post on this idea of imposter syndrome, which I've talked to other marketers about, you know, especially like Ryan Benici and I talked all about that for a while because, you know, my personal belief is no matter how experienced you are, how high up you are in your career, most people that have any sort of humbleness in them deal with imposter syndrome and feel like, there's other, there's so many other people that are better than them, that they're somehow falling behind sometimes. I'd love to know how you think about that, especially since, you know, given your age, you're under 30 and have had such an impressive career. So it must be something that you have experienced. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I'm conscious of. And when I think about, you know, the people I look up to, like you mentioned, Ryan Benici, maybe the best CMO in the world. Um, a guy like that has imposter syndrome. 
um, it kind of makes it a little easier to realize how a lot of more people in the world can have imposter syndrome because someone like him is doing is doing world class things at one of the fastest growing companies that there is in SaaS, and uh, he still has this feeling of imposter syndrome. So um, for me, it's always um, been about just over preparation, and I think that the more the further and further that I get in my career, the the more that I realized how important that was early on, but sort of how unnecessary it might've been. Early on in my career, I thought I had to do it all on my own. I thought I had to read every business book, every marketing book, listen to every podcast, um, read every TechCrunch article to uh, be more in the know than anyone else. And I think I, think I kind of missed the mark there um, by kind of over consuming and kind of taking it to a level where I didn't need to. A little bit further uh, on in my career, what I what I started realizing is more so than just reading everything that's getting put out there, I think that you need to find uh, a couple people, a couple mentors, a couple people that you just really respect, um, and you need to be able to ask them questions um, and make sure that they're really pointed questions, like make sure that they're very intentional questions about one, things that you're experiencing, and two, places that you want to go. Um, so I think that those people, it might be something that you're experiencing for the first time as like uh, an early marketer, someone that's earlier in your career in tech. Those people might have seen it uh, four, five, six, maybe even hundreds of times, and it, it might be a really easy answer for them. And it's not something, it's just not something you've run into before. Um, and then on the second thing, as for where you want to go, asking them what they did in their career that, uh, you think that they think made them successful. So um, like Ryan, for example, he wanted to be a CMO by 30. He knew that he wanted to do that. If that's a path that you want to go on and you want to be a CMO by 30, 35, like he'd be a great person to talk about or even listen to his story and sort of ask questions and how he thinks it's like still applicable for what companies are doing today and sort of how uh, you can see like yourself getting to that CMO by 30. So um, I think that as for imposter syndrome, it's something that'll always be there for me and probably for a lot of other people, but I think you can kind of combat it um, by just talking to people and getting like a good network, making, making sure that you have people to bounce questions off of. And I think maybe the third thing that I did that uh, I forgot about is, um, Early on at my last company, when I just started managing a team, um, I was really starting to like question if I should be where I was. Um, my founder sent me to, um, it was like a CMO, like VP of marketing level dinner with, with a lot of sort of higher up at other SaaS companies, uh, companies that just got funded, a lot of companies that we really respected and looked up to. And I was so nervous going into it. I, I was over preparing like I always did, trying to research every company, every person, making sure I had my talking points plotted out um, because I thought I was going to be overwhelmed by the information that they were talking about. And I got there and I sat down with these people of about 10 other VP CMO level marketers. And after the dinner, I thought to myself, Peter, you're not that far off. Like there might be a gap, but the gap is not significant. It's a pretty insignificant gap that can be filled and I think doing like that, things like that, and just realizing your self-worth and realizing things that you actually know are valuable, um, I think that that's, that's really important. 
And it's really hard too, because you see, especially on social media, all the people touting their expertise. And it's so easy to find the flaws in yourself or the gaps that you have without realizing the gaps that I have are different than the ones that you have, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're not both as equally as talented and can't drive the same results. Everyone has things in their life and career that they can always do better on. So mm-hmm. we got to stop comparing ourselves, I think, to others. Yeah, so- I agree. I think, I think in tech more than anything, there's so much sort of exclusive language by industry and by sector and like exclusive acronyms that people early on in their career are just overwhelmed by acronyms and words that mean nothing. But as soon as you get the lingo down, uh, everything becomes a little bit easier. It's funny when you were talking about acronyms and I was just thinking about it, my initial thought went to this idea of category creation and how that seems to be like the hot, hot topic right now is, you know, all these companies that are creating new categories and you know, sometimes I just question like, is it really a new cat, like a truly a new category or are we just like labeled something differently that kind of already existed and the tech has just evolved from it? So yeah, I, I think with category creation, I, I feel like categories have to evolve in that nature because if we think about the saturations, the saturation of the software space and just the sheer number of companies that are coming out, um, we can't have categories with like 500 to a thousand different softwares or like ven- other vendors are just never going to get found. Like people are just going to go with Salesforce and HubSpot and the old pillars. When I actually think based on these niches, people are creating softwares that better serve more niche audiences every day. So I actually think with the, the category creation that it's just making softwares more easy and relevant to find for the right audience, which I, I, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but I think how I'd like for it to play out is like those, those softwares to make it easier for them to find their niche audiences um, and not have it all be about like the big behemoth software companies. So we're going to get to something I like to call quick hits and I'm going to ask you a single question and you're supposed to give me the first reaction that comes to your mind. Okay. All right, let's do it. All right. All right. So what's the one thing you wish every marketer would do? I wish every marketer would learn sales and then vice versa. I wish every salesperson would learn more about marketing. The, the more and more I think about sales and marketing, um, I think it's a joint department. I think it's all the same. Everyone's working towards the same goal. We need each other to succeed. We should understand what each other do. What's the one thing you wish every marketer would stop doing? I think it goes back to, um, you know, we have too much data for there to be shitty marketing. I think that people should stop valuing uh, quantity over quality. I think that we get too much noise of people just shouting their message as loud as they can when 99% of people don't want to hear it. I think that, like we mentioned before, niches make riches, um, and that should value quality over quantity. What's the one thing every marketer should know? I think that every marketer should know uh, unit economics. I think that as marketers, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're growing our business. And even more than growing uh, the business is we're growing the business uh, a way that is economically sustainable. So looking at things like the lifetime value of our customers, 
how much it costs to recover or how much it costs to recover what it costs for us to get that customer. Um, I think that there's a lot of unit economics that marketers don't pay attention to because they're just so worried about growth. But I think it's our responsibility to grow sustainable businesses. Uh, so I think that's something every marketer should know. The most frustrating thing about marketing is? The most frustrating thing is saturation. There's so many times that I see customers that I know are perfect for our software and they end up going with uh, the wrong solution. And I know it's wrong for them. And I know they're going to be back on the market in 12 months. And I wish I could tell them, but I think it's just the problem that there is with saturation that uh, people aren't going to make the right decisions 100% of the time. One of my favorite aspects of having guests on the show is that I never know where the conversation is truly going to go. Sure, I always do my homework and have a list of questions prepared, but I really never could have imagined that Peter and I would somehow go from talking about marketing to talking about Candyland and then Fight Club references. And to me, that's where the best content and episodes happen is where the conversation takes this really unexpected turn. Now, let's dive into my top three takeaways from our conversation. First, tech startup life isn't always what the TV, movies, and social media make it out to be. Yes, don't get me wrong, tech companies often have amazing perks, especially as companies start to grow. But what most people don't realize is there's a lot of hard work that it takes for a company to go from an inception where it's someone's idea to being a behemoth in the industry. And that work is hard, it's stressful, and honestly, if you've not been through it, you can't even really understand it and it's hard to explain. And the earlier you start with a company, the more stressful it can become because finding product market fit is always a challenge and it isn't as easy as people think it should be. Take a look at Slack. What most people don't realize is that company initially started as a gaming company that failed miserably. And one of the products it built internally to help its teams communicate is what we call Slack today. But as challenging as startup life can be, it's also an experience unlike any other, where people work harder than they ever have before because so much is on the line. So if you're ever thinking about being an entrepreneur or eventually want to run a company someday, there's literally no better way to experience what it's really like than working in an early stage startup. Next, Peter's comment that niches make riches is so true. I wish he would copyright that, trademark it, put it on a bumper sticker. It's seriously a great, great, succinct message. So often companies tend to want to appeal to everyone, which by default means they appeal to no one because their messaging has become too vague. Their product now doesn't have all the features that one specific use case would need. It has a lot of just random features. And that's why his comment about how niches make riches is so perfect and so true. Staying focused in your go-to-market strategy, especially early on, is so crucial to long-term success. Now, this might be the moment where you start battling internally about this idea that if you position your company too specifically for one niche, that you'll always be a niche player and you'll never be able to see, grow outside of that. We've all thought that before. We've all worried about that. And some of us ex have experienced that exact issue happening. And that was true 10 plus years ago. That's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that if you position your company one way, that it will always be seen as that same type of company because that's not how the world operates anymore. Now, the most successful new companies start out with one clear value proposition for one specific target audience and then expand it over time. 
being focused initially doesn't mean you can't expand. It just means that you don't target everyone at the beginning. And trust me, that payoff is going to be so worth it. Niches do, in fact, make riches. Finally, shitty marketing has got to stop. I feel like a little bit of a broken record on this one because I swear I've said this a couple of times now on Mobile Matters, but it's worth repeating. I am still flabbergasted on a daily basis by the amount of truly crappy marketing that I see, whether it's in digital, print, direct mail, the list really goes on and on. Marketers today have way too much data to be making such poor decisions on channel execution, messaging, campaign tactics, and so forth. We all need to do a better job of using data to influence our decisions, actually setting hypotheses for testing things that we do, and using that data to determine if it worked, and then quickly iterating based on those results. There is no longer an excuse for shitty marketing, and there is no longer an excuse for marketers to not know what portion of their marketing is working and what's not working. I'm Stephanie Cox, and you've been listening to Mobile Matters. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until then, be sure to visit Limivate.com and subscribe to get more access to thought leaders, best practices, and all things mobile.